Welcome back to CJSW 90.9 FM. My name is Sean Collins and I'm the host of Energy Voices. Over the next hour, we're going to be doing a deep dive into a very contentious and interesting issue in the world of energy, which is fossil fuel divestment. We're first going to have Janice Tran, one of Student Energy's co-founders, do an overview of carbon risk and many of the ways in which investment is being leveraged to have an impact on the fossil fuel industry. Kaylee Taylor, our third Student Energy co-founder and our executive director, will then host a two-sided debate for and against fossil fuel divestment to give a deep dive insight into those who are working actively on shaping the future of the fossil fuel industry through finance. Before we kick off though, we have a very exciting announcement to share with our audience. Last month was the CJSW annual funding drive, and we're thrilled to announce that as part of our efforts to support the show, we have a year-long partnership that we've now formed with Bullfrog Power. You may remember two months ago that we had the VP of Marketing, Joe Coombe from Bullfrog Power on the show to talk about how students can have an impact on promoting clean energy through their individual consumer choices. After this conversation, we were very excited that Bullfrog Power was keen on supporting the show throughout the year, and so for the next year, you'll see support provided to the show directly by Bullfrog Power. If you want to see more, visit studentlife.bullfrogpower.com or check out the Student Energy blog periodically as we update on some of the interesting activities from Bullfrog Power. So a very big thank you to Joe, Jennifer, and the entire team at Bullfrog Power for making this partnership a reality. Without further ado, here's Janice Tran with part two in her three-part series on green finance with a focus on carbon risk. You may have heard terms like divestment, stranded assets, and decarbonization thrown around in the climate change community lately. But what does it all mean and why should we care? In part two of my three-part series on green finance, I'm going to talk about carbon risk and why it matters to the global climate community. So first, what is carbon risk? As world leaders become more serious about regulating carbon emissions, carbon-intensive industries, such as the oil and coal industry, are likely to face higher costs of production. Carbon risk describes the potential negative impacts on a company's bottom line if or when society makes a transition to a lower carbon future. Carbon risk goes further than just increased cost of production. The cost of production could go so high or demand for a carbon intensive product could fall so low that entire projects might be abandoned, the outcome of which is called a stranded asset. But why does carbon risk matter for the climate movement? This concept may not sound groundbreaking. However, this view has been a turning point for the environmental community because by speaking the language of risk, environmentalists are now able to make climate change relevant for the finance community, a group that was traditionally disengaged from the discussion. Investors may not know what exactly will happen in the future with carbon regulations or carbon prices, but what investors do know is that the business conditions are likely to change, and this uncertainty makes them more likely to act. Okay, so we know that carbon risk is important for the climate movement because it appeals to investors. Now, let's take a deeper look at which investors are the most important. It's probably not who you think. Globally, 48% of investable wealth is controlled by pension funds, 39% by insurance companies, and 9% by sovereign wealth funds. Family offices and high net worth individuals own only 2% of global wealth, 
foundations at only 1%, and finally, endowments, including those run by universities, control only 1% of global investable wealth. If we look at these numbers, we quickly realize that the investors who can truly move the needle in response to carbon risk are pension funds, insurance companies, and sovereign wealth funds, collectively making up 96% of global wealth. Luckily, these three investor types, out of all the investors, are the ones that are also the most likely to be impacted by climate change. Pension funds, insurance companies, and sovereign wealth funds all have long-term investment horizons. They need to make sure that the 20-year-old pensioner's contribution today will still be around in 40 years. So although carbon risk might not be an issue for any of these investors right now, their long investment horizons mean they need to look at risks that may affect them well into the future. Are these large institutional investors acting on carbon risks right now? In short, yes. In September, during the UN Climate Summit, we saw the creation of the Portfolio Decarbonization Initiative, which unites institutional investors to decarbonize $100 billion of investments. Earlier this month, UN Secretary Gen General Ban Ki-moon told delegates at a climate change summit in Copenhagen that big investors, such as insurers and pension funds, should cut their fossil fuel investment and focus on renewable energy sources instead. AP2, the Swedish pension fund with approximately $36 billion under management, announced in October that it sold its investments in 20 fossil fuel companies worth $113 million in their portfolio because of carbon risks. What about the smaller groups of investors, the high net worth individuals, foundations, and endowments? Although they manage much less of the world's wealth, these investors have an equally important role to play in promoting climate change action and in educating the world on carbon risk. Because the intention of many of these investors is more socially minded, they are more willing to use their capital to send a strong social message and increase visibility of climate issues. The rise in awareness of carbon risks today can be directly attributed to the very public stances that foundations such as the Rockefeller Foundation and university endowments such as Stanford's has taken on the issue. Now, let's move and talk about the methods, or rather how, an investor can mitigate against carbon risk. The first step is measurement and information. After all, you can't manage what you don't measure. Investors can measure climate risk in their portfolios by using resources such as the Carbon Risk Valuation Tool recently offered by Bloomberg, by reading voluntary disclosures through CDP, and through company sustainability reports, amongst many others. Once data has been collected, it can be used in a variety of ways. One way is by conducting a carbon sensitivity analysis, where investors see how exposed the companies they hold might be to forthcoming regulation on carbon and adjusting their portfolios accordingly. A second way is through engagement with companies, where investors meet with management at a company on climate change issues that pose a risk to the investor. A third way is through shareholder resolutions, which are proposals submitted by shareholders for a vote at the company's annual general meeting. Climate change-focused resolutions have traditionally fixated on getting companies to adopt goals and policies for lowering greenhouse gas emissions. Despite filing a large number of shareholder resolutions, many investors end up withdrawing the proposals as companies agree to cooperate. It's also important to note that recent policy changes at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission (SEC) have facilitated new types of carbon resolutions. 
In previous years, the SEC denied proposals requesting companies to disclose climate-related risks. However, the SEC is now allowing these resolutions to proceed. Finally, there is divestment. Divestment, in the context of carbon risk, is the act by which an investor sells all their shares in a company because of carbon-related factors. Divestment, as a tool for climate change activism, has been a growing phenomenon made popular by environmental networks like 350.org and students on university campuses. Despite its growing momentum, there are many critics. Institutional investors like pension funds often see divestment as a last resort option. Instead, these investors choose to engage companies in a dialogue to improve performance on climate change. They believe that by divesting their interest in the company, they can no longer exert positive influence on the firm. Upon selling their shares, they may just be repurchased by less climate-aware investors, which are comfortable with the status quo. However, divestment is still a growing momentum and should still be paid attention. So, there you have it. A seven-minute overview about the world of carbon risk and why it matters to future energy leaders like you. Please stay tuned for my next segment on green finance, and thank you for listening. Thanks for that great piece, Janice. The thing that really blew me away was the fact that nearly half of global investment wealth is in the hands of pension funds. Just the, the force and the power that that wields in the market is truly incredible and really helps shape the perspective of where we can focus some of the attention on having massive impact in, in the global energy system through financial means. Now I'm excited to welcome Kaylee uh, into the studio to host our next debate, which will be a very in-depth piece covering both sides of the fossil fuel divestment debate. So again, take it away, Kaylee. Hi, everyone. It's Kaylee Taylor, Executive Director of Student Energy here talking fossil fuel divestment on this segment of Energy Voices. Today, we're very excited to have two esteemed panelists in the studio talking about their perspectives on divestment, which of course is an issue that has taken the energy industry by storm over the last couple of years. Before we get started, I just wanted to give a big shout out to the Responsible Investment Association, who has helped us to get these panelists on uh, the show today. RIA is a national not-for-profit, membership-based organization composed of financial institutions, mutual fund companies, investment firms, financial advisors, consultants, and others who practice and support responsible investment, which refers to the integration of environment, social, and corporate governance issues into divestment decisions. So thank you so much to RIA for helping us out, and thank you to our panelists for being here. We have Jamie Bonham, Manager of Extractives Research and Engagement at NEI Investments. Hi, Jamie. Hello, Bailey. And we have Dimitri Lascaris, Partner at Siskins LLP. Hi, Dimitri. Hi, Kaylee. Thanks uh, for having us on. Yeah, we're very excited to have you today. So just so our listeners are aware of how we're going to structure this discussion, we are going to give a little bit of a history of divestment and how it's come to be. And then we're going to open it up to our panelists to give some perspectives that they hold on the whole campaign. Then we'll go into a pretty open discussion about fossil fuel divestment to hopefully leave our listeners with some new insights about how they look at the issue in general. So without any further ado, let's get started. 
Divestment refers to the reduction of some kind of asset for financial, ethical, or political objectives. Some of the most famous divestment campaigns uh, were surrounding apartheid in South Africa. But fossil fuel divestment has recently gained momentum and is the deliberate effort to remove investment from coal, oil, and natural gas companies as a form of climate action. The divestment movement launched about three years ago, and which is very interesting to student energy, students played a key role in that action as they pushed their universities to ensure their endowments were not invested in fossil fuels. Since the launch of the program or the movement, some 650 individuals and 180 institutions, including 50 new foundations, which hold over $50 billion in total assets, have pledged to slowly divest the fossil fuels over five years using a variety of approaches. Most recently, and uh, making big waves, the Rockefeller Foundation announced that they would divest their fossil fuel assets just days before the New York Climate Summit. So given all this context, we have a rich discussion around fossil fuel divestment and what it means for the energy industry. And now I'm going to open it up to our panelists, Jamie and Dimitri, to give their perspective on the fossil fuel divestment campaign. So Jamie, we'll start with you. Opening thoughts. All right. Thanks, Kaylee, and thanks for the chance to talk today, and I look forward to the discussion. It is a, a very, very interesting topic. Uh, quickly, background on NEI Investments. Most people probably haven't heard of us. So we are a retail mutual fund company. Uh, we have about $2.2 in assets under management, and about 60% of those assets are under our ethical fund brand. And so the uh, ethical fund brand is uh, integrates environmental, social, and governance practices into our investment decisions in terms of who we own and what we do when we are owners. Um, ownership structure is 50% Desjardins Group, which is a cooperative based in Quebec, and 50% the provincial credit union centrals uh, across Canada. Uh, so all of our profits go into the cooperative movement. Uh, in terms of myself, uh, I am the manager of Extractors Research and Engagement. What that means is uh, I manage engagement programs with the extractive companies, so think uh, mining, oil and gas, forestry, uh, and utilities. And uh, I've been at NEI about nine years. And uh, during my time there, anyways, the, uh, the goal of divestment as a tool for change has been uh, a topic of debate uh, uh, constantly, I guess. It is something that we have spent a lot of time thinking about in terms of a strategy, and so our take and our position on divestment hasn't, uh, we haven't come to it like it's something we've uh, spent a lot of time uh, debating internally and within our industry. Uh, and in terms of just to sort of lay out this um, at the beginning is I, I, I can't pretend to be an anti-divestment, um, have an anti-divestment position. I think that there is uh, a lot of good that has come out of this campaign so far already, and uh, I'm hoping we have a chance to, to talk about some of that. Um, but I have been asked to kind of give a, a sort of counter um, position to divestment. And so uh, I can say that if, if some of the current campaigns around divestment have been maybe a, perhaps a bit too um, single-minded in their approach towards divestment, and I think if they don't, it, without a bit more nuance to the approach, uh, there are some there are some um, warning signs in there, I guess. That uh, for me, anyways, in terms of the divestment campaign, 
Uh, and those, we can get into these hopefully in our conversation, but they risk, uh, sorry, for me it runs a risk of polarizing the debate uh, and what that leads to, as well as just questions around efficacy of, of is this theory the best use of our time and no pun intended or energy. Um, but I'm hoping we can get into that. Uh, in terms of our, our position, if not strict divestment, we feel that there's a lot more room for investors to have uh, a significant influence on this issue. And it is one that is of utmost importance. The whole concept of um, stranded assets in the carbon bubble is one that uh, we are spending a, a lot of time with today. It is uh, a, a huge issue for investors and in particular responsible investors. And I think it would be imprudent for anyone who manages money to not be considering this, these issues. Uh, for us, we think the approach that investors should take uh, is at a high level, uh, basically can be summed into about three areas there. Um, on the first one is, is actually understanding the companies you own and looking at the tool of exclusion, which is essentially divestment by any other name. Um, but for us, it's not a question of having to divest since we just exclude the company in the first place. But there are definitely companies out there in the fossil sector who are impediments to progress and they just don't have um, a place in a responsible mandate. And the odds of engaging them to change are, uh, are too slim for us to spend our time with. So we do, we do definitely exclude, use the tool of divestment. Um, if you look at the TSX, roughly about 34% of the upstream oil and gas companies don't make it into our portfolio. Um, and not always just because of carbon, but that is uh, probably one of the main reasons they don't. Um, the, the second area investors should be doing uh, in terms of uh, the tools they have in front of them is engagement. And we've seen significant uh, significant gains made through the engagement uh, with companies, and uh, we'll, I, I'm guessing we'll get into that later, and so I won't, I won't talk about them right now, other than to say that the gains that we have seen have been done with a very, very small subset of investors, um, sometimes a subset of one, just ourselves. And uh, I think if you could really amplify the voices on these issues, then I, I personally some substantive change is possible. Uh, and then the last area is policy advocacy. I think investors have been far too quiet on this front. Uh, we ourselves spend a lot of time making submissions to government, making our position known. And uh, I think having uh, the bulk of investors out there really pushing governments towards progressive climate policy would be an enormous benefit uh, and frankly, I think it carries a bit more weight when it comes from uh, investors who do have assets within one of Canada's biggest economic sectors. Uh, and essentially, we are saying that we want progressive policies. We own some companies in this sector, and uh, that doesn't scare us. In fact, we see that opportunities. So uh, at a high level, that is sort of uh, the game plan I would see in terms of, if not divestment, then those three areas are something investors could uh, engage on. But uh, I, I won't go any further uh, and uh, look forward to, to some back and forth. And, uh, and also, as I say, this is a topic that uh, we're spending a lot of time 
talking about, thinking about, strategizing about. And so uh, I'm hoping to also just learn from today as well. Great. Thanks so much, Jamie. So to sum up, uh, NEI sees this as a suite of activities, including exclusion, engagement, and political advocacy uh, to actually deal with some of these issues around social and environmental concerns of extractive industries. Uh, Dimitri, I'll open it up to you now for some opening comments. Thanks, Kaylee. Uh, first of all, let me say that uh, uh, this is not the first time I've had an opportunity to discuss this uh, critically important issue with someone from Northwest uh, Ethical Fund. And uh, I, although I don't always see precisely eye to eye uh, with the managers from that firm, I, I recognize that they are a leader in ethical investment in Canada and are doing a lot of fine work. And uh, I think, uh, you know, I hope to see a lot more of that type of investment philosophy in the Canadian uh, financial markets going forward. Um, my own background uh, is that I am a currently a securities class actions lawyer, uh, and I litigate extensively against, uh, but by no means exclusively against fossil fuels companies based uh, in Alberta, uh, primarily, however, having to do with questions of uh, securities fraud and shareholder rights. Prior to that time, uh, I also do environmental class actions, uh, and uh, that's becoming an increasingly important part of my work. And prior to that time, uh, my becoming a class actions lawyer, I was a securities lawyer in New York City and represented uh, Fortune 500 companies. Found that to be a decidedly unsatisfying experience and uh, left the practice of law for a few years and decided that this was uh, what I'm currently doing was much more uh, uh, suited to my, uh, my personality and my values. Um, in terms of this, the, the divestment issue, I think it's important for us to frame the discussion uh, in, in terms of the current science relating to uh, what has come to be known as the carbon budget. And um, one might say that the, the, the discussion around the carbon budget began with an April 2009 paper authored by researchers from the UK, Germany, and Switzerland which was published in the prestigious uh, science journal Nature, and it was called Greenhouse Gas Emission Targets for Limiting, Limiting Global Warming. And uh, this paper formulated a carbon budget, namely the, amount, the maximum amount of CO2 that humanity can emit going forward without causing catastrophic climate change. And governments have come to define this as a global average temperature increase of 2 degrees Celsius over pre-industrial levels. And currently, we've already uh, gotten almost a degree Celsius of warming. Uh, on the assumption that an increase of 2 degrees Celsius would be tolerable uh, and relatively safe, this research group concluded that we have an 80% chance of uh, remaining within a tolerable temperature increase if we emitted 886 gigatons of CO2. Uh, and using their analysis, a newly formed group of green-minded investors in London called the Carbon Tracker Initiative uh, published a report in 2011, two years later, called Unburnable Carbon. And Carbon Tracker calculated in the first 10 centuries of this century, humanity had burned through one-third of the 886 gigaton uh, amount, leaving just 565 gigatons of CO2 emissions to emit safely. Uh, these 565 gigatons now have come to be viewed widely as our carbon budget. There are many reasons to think that this carbon budget is actually a far too optimistic measure uh, for how much carbon we can continue to burn. Uh, as I indicated, governments have selected the 2 degrees Celsius threshold. Uh, the scientific consensus, that's the political consensus, the scientific consensus is arguably significantly less aggressive, 
Many scientists believe that any increase substantially above 1% is unacceptably dangerous. Uh, some scientists have described 2 degrees Celsius as a suicide pact for drought-stricken Africa and for certain island states that will be swamped by even moderate increases in the sea level. Uh, furthermore, the carbon budget focuses, as its name implies, on CO2, but there are many other human-caused sources of global warming, particularly methane, which is a far more powerful greenhouse gas than CO2. Uh, in addition, recent discoveries have indicated that scientists have substantially underestimated the rapidity of climate change and the severity of its near uh, to medium-term effects on the planet. For example, a major section of the West Antarctic ice sheet was recently determined to be in irreversible decline. That's the, uh, that's the terminology of the uh, authors of the study. And its melting will add 1.2 meters to global sea levels, largely within the next 200 years. The loss of, and that's just a major section of the West Antarctic ice sheet. The loss of the entire West Antarctic ice sheet, which is a real and growing danger, would cause up to four meters of sea level rise, which would absolutely devastate low-lying and coastal areas uh, around the world, including many of the world's great cities. Uh, in addition, it was recently discovered that deeper valleys lie under the Greenland ice sheet uh, than was previously believed, meaning that the melting of this massive ice sheet will be a greater contributor to sea level rise than scientists had previously expected. Uh, in any event, using, sticking with a 565 gigaton budget, using official records filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, Carbon Tracker calculated the amount of CO2 contained in the fossil fuel reserves of the top 200 fossil fuel companies, certainly not all of them, just the top 200, contained approximately 2,800 gigatons of CO2, which constitutes an astonishing five times our carbon budget. And it is critical to note that this does not include unconventional fossil fuel resources like tar sands and shale oil. And former NASA scientist James Hansen calculates that Canada's tar sands alone contains 240 gigatons of CO2, which is nearly half of the carbon budget. In short, at least 80% of all fossil fuel reserves would have to remain in the ground to prevent potentially apocalyptic global warming. And given all of the other considerations I've mentioned, it is likely that far in excess of 80% of those fossil fuel reserves would have to remain in the ground. Uh, the carbon tracker study was followed by a report by HSBC concluding that the largest oil and gas companies could lose as much as 60% of their market capitalization representing many trillions of dollars were governments to impose the restrictions that are essential to keep humanity within the carbon budget. And based largely on the work of the Carbon Tracker Initiative, climate change activist Bill McKibben founded an organization called 350.org, which then launched a campaign to educate the public about, uh, as he termed it in a now famous Rolling Stone article, the terrifying math of climate change. And that campaign has now led to students at over 250 North American universities seeking fossil fuel fueled investment. Uh, and I uh, had the privilege of being asked by the University of Toronto's uh, chapter of 350.org to present their petition for divestment to the president of the university earlier this year. And uh, subsequently, the president uh, decided uh, to strike a committee to consider the divestment proposal. Uh, and I'm hopeful that other uh, groups around the country uh, at Canada's universities will uh, pick up the mantle, uh, and I know that others are pursuing similar initiatives because at the end of the day, you know, I'm 50 years old, I've had a long and full life already. It's the students of this world and the younger generation uh, who will be most, most uh, profoundly impacted and negatively impacted by climate change if we don't take urgent action.
Great. Thanks so much, Dimitri. So playing off of that and now understanding the budgets uh, around carbon that we're dealing with, is fossil fuel divestment an effective strategy for that climate action and how? Uh, Jamie, would you like to respond or do you want me to? I'll get you to go uh, first, start. Dimitri. Well, uh, look, I, I don't harbor any illusions about what it's going to take to uh, deal with this crisis. Uh, divestment is not in and of itself going to solve the problem. Divestment is a tool, an important one, um, that I think can be effective for reasons I'm going to get into in a moment. But before I answer your question directly, Kaylee, I'd, I'd like to say that the, the discussion from my perspective is not simply about uh, you know, what is the most effective method for dealing with climate change. Uh, I think we have a, a, a prior question that we have to ask ourselves, and that is, what is our moral duty? And the science is absolutely unequivocal uh, that climate change uh, is happening, it's caused by human beings, and if we don't dramatically alter our dependence upon fossil fuels, that we are looking at an existential threat to our species and to countless other species. And to my mind, and I say this with the greatest of respect to people in the industry who continue to uh, invest even in limited uh, degrees to in the fossil fuels industry, I don't think it is consistent with our moral obligations as human beings to each other to uh, profit from the fossil fuels industry, from an activity that is posing an existential threat to our species. And, you know, in Canada, we like to talk about the short-term and medium-term benefits to our country of you know, uh, the fossil fuels industry, and I know that it's created many jobs. But as others have said, there are no good jobs on a dead planet. And I don't think that we as Canadians have the right to prefer our short or medium-term interests over the interests of humanity as a whole. So for me, it's first and foremost a question of what our moral obligation is. You know, whether it's an effective strategy depends in part upon the extent to which it's adopted, because if it is adopted widely, uh, then it could have real impacts on the cost of capital for fossil fuels companies, uh, and that would make their businesses less profitable. If it's something that's not adopted widely, it's probably going to have uh, no or negligible impact on the cost of capital. Uh, so really, a certain critical mass would have to be achieved in order for there to be a meaningful impact on the cost of capital of fossil fuels companies. But whatever uh, the ultimate extent of divestment may be, uh, there's a powerful message that's sent by divestment. There's a stigmatization of the industry that is communicated to the public by divestment. When sophisticated investment managers, uh, you know, having custody over billions of dollars of, uh, you know, wealth of pensioners and others, say, we're not going to invest in this industry. What that tells the public is that this industry uh, is one uh, that is a core part of the problem and that we need to find other ways to deal with the energy needs of our society. So I think there's a, an, an important educational component as well. Uh, and so, to my mind, it can be an effective strategy. It's not by any means a sufficient uh, te technique for dealing with climate change. And it is, above all, a moral duty. Great. Thank you. And Jamie, in your opening comments, you mentioned that there are uh, kind of potential implications, positive and negative. You mentioned polarization. You mentioned that you, we've seen some wins from uh, the divestment campaign. Can you go into those a little bit more in depth and, and what you see as both the positive and negative? negative implications of the strategy? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and maybe just uh, to start off the top, um, just in, in a short sort of response to Dimitri uh, in terms of the moral duty, uh, and I do 
absolutely agree on, uh, and we are a firm that has put moral values into our investment decisions for a, a long time now. Um, and so for me, the, the moral question is what is the most effective strategy? Uh, and I do think those two are linked. Um, I, I think ultimately we have to find solutions. And for me, it's a question of what is the most effective solution. We have to make change. Um, and so in terms of the, the, the positives I've seen from the, the campaign is um, – Let's say we've been we've been around for a while doing this. One of the maybe the biggest um, uh, disappointments I would say that we've had over the years has been really the lack of engagement on responsible investment practices from um, university endowment funds, from certain foundations. They've really been divorcing what they do as a business from how they invest and. The divestment campaign has a, has torn them out of that um, that scenario and forced it upon them. And uh, we've seen more gain in the last three years in terms of uh, endowment funds taking this this issue seriously uh, than uh, I've seen since I've been around. And, uh, and I think that is a, a, a huge win. Um, regardless of whether they go down the route of divestment or not divestment, the fact that it's uh, a question of what are our investments doing, uh, that's, that's fantastic. So I, I've seen a, a big upside um, from that perspective. And uh, in terms of, um, I guess, my concerns around the downside of the approach uh, is that um, I'm, I'm, I am worried about the polarizing approach uh, around the language of um, I guess demonizing the industry, and there are actors in the industry that deserve demonization, and so I think it should really be more targeted approach for those actors. Uh, but I don't know that maybe society writ large is ready to take on that, um, take on that sort of uh, stigmatization, if you will. Uh, if, if we create a more polarized this is debate, uh, I would kind of see, if you look down at the U.S., where that gets you. Uh, and it, it leads to, I think, stagnation. I think creative ideas get lost within that sort of um, ideological back and forth. Uh, but in terms of the idea of stigmatizing the industry and whether that's right or wrong, um, I, I don't think it'll actually be affected. I think a good example is to point to tobacco, um, the tobacco campaign, which is often cited as a model for an investment campaign. And uh, arguably, it was entirely successful in stigmatizing that industry. I don't think anyone really points to a tobacco executive as a pillar of society. Um, but if you look closely at what happened to the industry, it should give you pause. So the result of... Um, all of the various negative attention that industry has received is they've consolidated themselves into about five large public companies, uh, and the remaining uh, part of the market has uh, gone the way of national state-owned companies. So um, the biggest manufacturer of cigarettes today is the China National Tobacco Corporation. They make about a third of all cigarettes in the world. Uh, and they are completely untouchable in terms of whether it's investor pressure or public pressure, really. Um, it's 
smoking rates really haven't gone anywhere. Those, those top companies that I mentioned, they're extremely profitable. They made about $35 billion in profits in 2010. Uh, and... To me, the warning sign there is that the oil industry also has a fairly strong um, contingent of state-owned oil companies that uh, are really immune to public pressures. And the only the only real way I see of um, uh, of getting progress where it, it doesn't fall into the hands of state-owned private companies is to attack the demand. This is really a demand issue. Um, we can try from the supply side, but I, I, I don't see that as a successful route. Uh, I, I do think without killing the demand, we really, um, we're just shuffling the, the deck chairs really in terms of who's producing the oil. Uh, it may not happen in Alberta anymore, but it'll happen somewhere. So um, I think the, the real focus should be on how do we get out of the situation in terms of killing our demand. Great. Thanks, Jamie. Uh, Dimitri, I'm, I'm curious on uh, your response to, to that, but also to some of the comments you made around reaching a critical mass in terms of the effectiveness of this strategy and um, how often uh, the environment and the economy are pitted against each other and it's either jobs or the you know sustainability of our planet. So I, I'm curious to both um, your thoughts on what Jamie just mentioned around divestment, potentially um, shuffling deck chairs and and just putting more power in state-owned companies, and then also how in a, in a place where it's quite open like Canada, but there is this discourse around the environment and the economy being pitted against each other, how we reach that critical mass. Uh, well, I, I think... Uh you know, one of the common criticisms you hear about in response to the stigmatization argument, which I made, and I don't know if this is directly responsive to your question, Kaylee, but I, I think it's, it's a point that I need, I would like to address, and that is uh, the question about de- demonization. Um, from my perspective, as somebody uh, who cares deeply about climate change and who's not been shy about expressing his views about them, uh, the demonization is flowing the other way. The fossil fuels industry is rather ruthless in its efforts to demonize environmentalists and activists in the climate change space and scientists. And one uh, you know, prominent example of that is Michael Mann in the United States, a climate scientist who uh, was the creator of this famous hockey stick graph, which showed uh, dramatic increases in uh, CO2 concentrations and temperatures uh, as, uh, as we continue to burn CO2, uh, carbon. Uh, and he was he was vilified uh, by right wing groups in the United States who were uh, almost certainly funded to a considerable degree and directed to a considerable degree uh, in a relatively non transparent way by the fossil fuels industry. You hear, you hear people who are advocates for fossil fuels, uh, spokespersons for fossil fuels, characterizing climate science as a, as a massive conspiracy of lunatics who want to turn the world into some kind of left wing environmental utopia. I mean, you know, it's hard for me to think of more uh, brazen attempts to demonize a constituency than those have been that have been made by the fossil fuels industry towards uh, the environmental community. Um, and you even see things like you're seeing up in the Arctic when Greenpeace activists uh, try to draw attention to uh, drilling uh, in uh, Arctic waters by Russian uh, oil companies. Uh, they were ended, they ended up being put in jail 
simply for trying to draw trying to draw attention to something that which really ultimately, as the science is telling us, causes an existential threat to humanity. So I think the demonization is really that that is the favorite tactic of the fossil fuels industry. But the fact of the matter is, uh, to the extent that you know divestment is a stigmatization or de- uh, demonization, uh, pick your word of the fossil fuels industry, you're dealing with a few, an industry uh, which, as Naomi Klein has said, has a business model that is designed ultimately to wreck the planet. And I don't really know of a way to engage uh, constructively with an industry that has built into its DNA the destruction of the planet. And, uh, you know, I've, I actually had occasion uh, in the course of advocating for divestment to do research into uh, efforts to engage with the industry. And the results that, uh, of my research were not at all encouraging. Uh, I looked, for example, in the database of the Shareholder Association for Research and Education. Uh, this, I used the search term climate. It generated 64 results, uh, and, uh, 64 shareholder proposals. Several of those proposals were not actually related to climate change, and of those that were related, uh, many had been withdrawn before they went to a vote. Ultimately, I found 24 successful proposals, or I'm sorry, something in the range of 32. 24 of them simply required the issuer to make enhanced disclosure of climate-related risks and or the issues uh, around carbon emissions. Of those, only five of the proposals involved a fossil fuels industry corporation, nine involved financial institutions. Seven of the 64 proposals required enhanced analysis and or monitoring of climate-related risks. One proposal called for an actual change in the issuer's business practices, just one of the 64. And in that case, Enhanced Investment Management filed a resolution requesting that Suncor uh, establish a goal and timeline for offsetting the direct greenhouse gas emissions produced by Suncor's uh, tar sands operations. Suncor met with Enhanced committed to revise its climate change strategy by establishing targets and goals for reduction technologies uh, and evaluating opportunities for what it termed carbon neutrality, and Enhanced then agreed to withdraw the resolution. This proposal was filed in April 2007, over seven years ago. What happened since then? Uh, In in 2006, Suncor averaged 260,000 BPD from the tar sands. In 2013, that number had risen to 393,000 barrels per day, an increase of approximately 50% over seven years. In 2013, only about 1.5% of Suncor's $4.7 billion in operating earnings were generated from renewable energy. And what it calls renewable energy Suncor is largely the sale of ethanol, and that is a controversial, uh, quote-unquote, renewable energy. Uh, and the most notorious example, to my mind, uh, was one involving ExxonMobil. Uh, it was a very recent uh, case of engagement in which shareholder activists specifically asked ExxonMobil to measure the risks under the two degrees Celsius scenario. And rather than responding to the question, uh, the, the ExxonMobil said, I believe that any future capping, I'm quoting what they said, any future capping of carbon-based fuels to the levels of a low-carbon scenario is highly unlikely due to pressing social needs for energy. And to my mind, and I don't say this lightly as a securities lawyer, that statement is so contrary to the facts, particularly those that I discussed relating to our carbon budget and how much is left, uh, that SEC, the SEC should be investigating ExxonMobil for securities fraud. That is an, a positively uh, incredible statement. 
we are hanging by a thread at the moment. We can no longer afford incrementalism. We have to leave massive amounts of the known reserves of companies, fossil fuels companies, in the ground. Rather than do that, we're spending enormous amounts of money on uh, looking for new sources uh, of new reserves of fossil fuels in particularly risky areas of the world, like the Arctic Ocean, for example. So uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, I can't say that I've had the direct interactions, I've not made the direct attempts that people like Jamie have made, and I don't have the benefit of, you know, their insights. I recognize that. But standing on the outside as I am and looking in, it's very difficult for me to see any meaningful uh, successes through engagement and, uh, and, and successes uh, that really take into account the urgency of the situation. We can no longer afford incrementalism. And if engagement is successful, it is successful over a very long term. Uh, we don't have a long term anymore. Uh, and the last thing I'll say in response to your question about jobs, you know, uh, and this is really a whole other topic, but there would be an immense amount of employment created uh, through Marshall Plan for Renewable Energy. If, if the private sector and the public sector came together and did so not just nationally but on a global scale to uh, enhance the use of wind and solar, for example, which has become uh, the price of which has been driven down dramatically, even without massive public investment, um, then you would see a, a tremendous amount of employment created. And I suspect that the jobs that would be created would be a lot more satisfying to the workers than going up to northern Alberta and destroying pristine boreal forest and creating a vast toxic wasteland the size of the United Kingdom. Uh, so I don't really think that the employment picture would be uh, less favorable. I think it would be significantly more favorable, potentially, if we made the necessary investment in renewable energy. Great. Thanks, Dimitri. Um, Jamie, before we go into our final question, I'm just curious on the engagement side, if you have seen any glimmers of hope, so to speak, in, in the effectiveness of engagement with some of these large uh, fossil fuel companies. Uh, yeah, and absolutely. I mean, I would not be doing what I'm doing if I didn't believe that. And uh, I do, uh, I mean, I acknowledge the, the comment around uh, it is the long game, really, um, in terms of engagement. And uh, from the time that I started talking to companies about this in my current role about 10 years ago, uh, we have seen substantive change, and that comes from having a very informed and respectful dialogue with uh, and, and talking to companies outside of just the fossil fuel sector, obviously, um, but within keeping the sort of topic on strict carbon, uh, there had, when we first started this um, back in 2006, in terms of talking to companies about uh, climate change-related issues, uh, we noted in particular the, the dramatic lack of R&D in the industry, uh, in particular around enhanced environmental performance, uh, as well as uh, what we would like to see, which is diversification. Um, and that is, over the, over the years, that was a constant theme, and the understanding between ourselves and companies grew in terms of seeing their challenges, and you have to be able to acknowledge the internal challenges companies feel uh, or face. Um, but also push for that change. And so we've seen a, a fairly significant increase on that innovation side in terms of uh, how the industry now looks at innovation, how it embraces it. Uh, it is no longer um, something they do on the side. It is very much 
front and center for these companies that improving environmental uh, performance is uh, job number one. Um, it doesn't make them not an oil company. Uh, I definitely acknowledge that. And I come back to the same issue of demand. Um, uh, I, I, right now, the reason oil companies are so widely held is because they are such an integral part of our current economic system. Um, we need to change that, obviously. Uh, but at the same time, they are fundamental to the working of our society. Uh, and we can pretend that we can divest from them and um, let them carry on doing what they're doing. And they'll, they'll still have the same focus on environmental improvements. But really, I, I think I'd rather be in the room while we're using fossil fuels, talking to those companies so that they do it responsibly. But in terms of a glimmer of hope, what I see is that companies that operate in this area are fairly well positioned for a step into diversification away from fossil fuels. Not everyone is going to make it. And I think you'll see as, as we go through um, uh, in over the next five years for us, for example, uh, I think you'll see companies start to drop off of our list anyways, um, because some just are not, not ready for a transition. But for the ones that are, they have a, a lot of characteristics that are beneficial. They have a massive cash flow that uh, people in the renewable space could, could only dream to have available. Um, they have a high appetite for risk, uh, and they have experience with massive, uh, complex projects. And all of these things speak to me um, as uh, an opportunity. Um, and, and I readily say that this is not to be for all companies, um, but I do think that the odds of... Uh, we, we just know that in, over the next five years, for example, there is really no chance that we're getting off of oil or other fossil fuels in a major way. Um, and I think to, to just ignore the industry is, to me, not the responsible activity because we are so dependent on them right now that investing in the rest of the economy is actually investing in the demand side. Um, I think where the, the potential lies is realistically what we need is a very strong carbon carbon framework, carbon policy at the legislative level uh, that is putting a price on carbon and making sure that the actual that every dollar that's made today out of say, the oil sands or conventional oil uh, is creating money towards uh, investment into R&D and research because I, I, I feel like we need to significantly ramp up that side of things uh, and in particular in those game-changing technologies that don't currently exist. We have some promising technologies that should be deployed far more than they are, but we don't have, I don't think, the, the actual solutions yet. We need massive, massive increases in R&D to get there. And I think price on carbon, to me, makes uh, a whole lot of sense in terms of where that money will come from. Um, and uh, at the moment, we have companies, in terms of our engagement, has focused around getting companies to publicly support that idea. And we see that more and more now in the industry. Uh, and we have companies on board saying not only that they... Um, are in favor of the price of carbon, but they've done the math, and uh, it's not going to bankrupt them at whatever sixty-five bucks a ton. 
Uh, and having that narrative is now a place helpful for you to come to government and say, here, here we go. We have the industry itself saying this is not an impediment for them. Um, let's get on it. And now why we haven't, uh, that's, another, that's another debate altogether why we don't have that policy. But the, the fact that companies are at this stage where they uh, are supportive of policy, that is a direct result of, uh, in my mind, uh, of corporate engagement. And um, it, is a, it is a long game, I'll admit that. But I, the alternative, I, don't, I just don't see... Um, I just don't see it happening in terms of uh, divestment creating uh, enough of an impact to uh, to force change. Great. Thanks, Jamie. So to, to kind of close out this discussion, Student Energy is, of course, an organization dedicated to creating the next generation of energy and sustainability leaders. And we feel it's very important to kind of directly uh, uh, address them and, and, and give them kind of a closing thought on what you would consider if if you were a student who was looking into this issue and considering what it means for their future in a career or as as a citizen who's engaged. Um, so one closing thought. Uh, we'll start with Dimitri and then Jamie, and then we'll close out this very rich discussion. Uh, well, um, I think uh, if I were of uh, you know the generation of. Uh, students uh, today at the University of Calgary and elsewhere, I would simply uh, be owning up to the fact that there is no other alternative than to end our dependence on fossil fuels and to do so forthwith. It has to be done. If it's not done, then the conditions for life on this planet will deteriorate dramatically and civilization as you know we have known it for the last several decades for all of our lifetimes uh, will probably cease to exist. And ultimately, the planet may become completely and, un, uh, and uh, uninhabitable, not just for our species, but countless others. I mean, this is the stark reality we confront, particularly uh, those who are students and, uh, uh, and those who are unborn. And uh, although I do not deny the difficulty of the challenge, in fact, our technologies that exist today, uh, sure, we have to invest massively in R&D. I completely agree with Jamie on that point. Uh, but, you know, for example, uh, this past summer, Germany uh, broke records repeatedly for the percentage of its electricity demand that was met from solar. In June of this year, over half of its electricity demand, we're talking about one of the most sophisticated and large economies in the world, was generated from solar. And Germany is not a sun-drenched land, as we all know. And uh, the U.K., broke records for electricity generation from solar. France, Italy, and Denmark. You know, when I travel across Europe nowadays, I see the landscape dotted with wind turbines and with solar energy. Nothing like that is going on here. The Europeans have a high-speed rail system, which makes uh, airline traffic much less attractive. And we know know that's a major source of carbon emissions. Uh, Here, we have nothing of the kind. In this country, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of what is possible. A great deal is possible with existing technologies, and it's up to the young people of our time to realize that their their use and the end of dependence on fossil fuels is simply unavoidable. Great, thanks, Jamie. One quick final comment. Uh, yeah, sure. I, mean, I guess keeping to the theme of uh, investments, I would. Uh, I guess my my parting comment would be 
to demand accountability um, from whether it's your endowment you're talking to or whether it's your own personal investments um, because this is absolutely uh, an imperative for our time. Um, there is probably no other larger risk, but um, uh, for those who are managing money on your behalf, uh, to demand accountability. And so that's, that may be through uh, pushing for divestment, but uh, also acknowledging that there are um, other ways to have very positive impacts, but demand accountability around those impacts because there are, uh, and first to say it in, as a member of this industry, there, there, there are those out there that can say they're doing something, but might not actually have much meat on the bones behind it. And I think uh, without full transparency from the people managing your money, uh, you won't know what they're doing on your behalf. So I think this is absolutely the question that you should be placing towards uh, whoever it is that manages uh, your money in whatever way, uh, because it, it it is absolutely, uh, as I say, an imperative for our time. That uh, and just be open to the end goal, which is effective change. Great. Thank you both so much for participating. Our our network in over 80 countries, I think, will really identify with this discussion and 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 take a lot away from it and that will help them moving forward. Um, so thank you again for participating. And we look forward to continuing the conversation online on our blog. And you can uh, tweet your thoughts on Twitter uh, by tagging at Student Energy. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Kaylee, and thank you very much, Jamie. Always a, a pleasure speaking to people from Northwest. Thank you, Dimitri, and thank you, Kaylee. Very much appreciate it. Bye. Okay, thanks. brings us to an end of another episode of Energy Voices. As always, feel free to reach out with story ideas or comment using hashtag Energy Voices on social media channels. You can listen to previous episodes by visiting bit.ly slash Energy Voices or by searching Energy Voices in your favorite podcast service, including iTunes. Again, a huge thank you to Bullfrog Power for supporting this portion of Energy Voices and for supporting Student Energy directly. Energy Voices is produced by Sean Collins and Kai Sinclair with contributions from Janice Tran and Kaylee Taylor. Mm-hmm.